As we uh, stand, let's pray. Lord, we uh, look forward to that day when we will worship you in heaven and we will hear your words from your very mouth. Lord, as we come now to Romans uh, 6, help us to hear the words by your, of your mouth by your spirit, Lord. And may they be clear and challenging to our hearts and minds. Amen. Please sit down. Uh, you'll need your Bibles open in front of you on Hebrew, uh, Romans. Hebrews? Romans. Chapter 6, page 1133. So um, here we are, bogged down in Romans 6 and 7 again. As Alan said last week, it seems that we have to wait until chapter 8 until we get back to the exciting bits. But chapter 6 and 7, as ever with Scripture, are worth our struggle. Because what we have here is a very important development of thought. Going from verse 1 of chapter 5, when Paul reminds us that and says, we have been justified through faith. We have been justified through faith. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But can we really be sure of that? Yes, says Paul, because we base our confidence in God's abundant provision of grace and his gift of righteousness, righteousness through Christ. That's verse 17. And can anything stand in the way of that? Again, Paul says, no, not death, chapter 5 and verses 12 to 21, nor sin, chapter 6, that's what we had last week from Alan, nor the law in chapter 7, nor nothing, nor anything at all, chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So in this new age of grace, nothing can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors then why do we still sin? In fact, isn't there an argument to say we should just carry on sinning because God will forgive us anyway? That's why chapters 6 and 7 are so important to us. Because it's here that Paul is dealing with this horrendous tension that we all have in our lives. That is the, between the objective fact of our justification by faith and the experience that we all know of our lives. Or as Paul puts it at the beginning of our reading, verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, sorry, got this wrong, uh, verse 15 of chapter 6, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? I discovered something called Yahoo Answers uh, today, on the in uh, this week on the internet. I haven't seen it before, but it's incredible. You can put in any question that you want, and anybody can write in and provide their answer. But what is really funny about it is that the person who asked the question can then grade the answers that they receive, give them star ratings, and choose their favorite. Amongst all the questions that I saw on there this week, there's one which said, is it okay for me to have many sexual partners and for this not to be considered sin? A blunt but concise answer to the effect that, no, it's a sin, was given a thumbs down and no stars. <laughs> the asker's favorite answer, which was given a three-star rating, said this, God will forgive you no matter what because he loves you. Keep on sinning. 
It's true. That was the answer. And that's the one he chose. That's the one his favorite answer. It's interesting, isn't it? Suddenly something as old as Paul's letter to the Romans, written almost 2,000 years ago, comes bang up to date. People are still asking the same questions today. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? But Paul's answer is a little different from the one chosen by our Yahoo asker. He probably wouldn't have gained any stars. Paul says, by no means. I love that response, don't you? I want to be more emphatic in my life. I'm going to go around saying, by no means. So why is Paul so emphatic in this way? Well, I think he's trying to make two points here. The first is that we are under new ownership. We are under new ownership. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. The second is this. We have entered into a new relationship. No longer are we in this relationship of drudgery and slavery, but we are living in the new way of the Spirit. So first, let's look at the first one. We are under new ownership. Verse 16. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness? Now, Paul's illustration of slavery seems a little bit weird to us. But obviously, for him, it's just an example out of everyday life for people in the first century. Even so, it still seems a bit strange when we hear Paul saying, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, where we think, well, who would ever offer themselves to be a slave? But Paul here seems to assume that there was no choice. Indeed, in the first century, it would have been quite common for poorest people to actually offer themselves to a rich man who would give them food and lodging in basically return for complete dedication and service. Basically, the poor people had no choice. That was their That was their social support, if you like. Well, you may think, that's okay, because I'm not poor. I don't need to offer my life to anyone. I don't need to be a slave. I'm a free man, and I want to stay that way. But in Paul's terms, we are all poor. That surely is the point of the first three chapters of Romans. What can we offer God? On our own, we are just fools, given over to sinful desires. Neither Jews or Gentiles have anything to offer to God. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. All have turned away and together become worthless, become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are the poorest of the poor, without any spiritual wealth of our own. We have no choice but to become a slave. In terms of spiritual slavery, there is no neutral ground. The only question is, who do we serve? Who is our master? And when Jesus was asked this question once, his answer was quite clear. In John chapter 8, and verse 31, he says, To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews, they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And so Paul can say in verse 16, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. 
whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You are the exclusive possession of just one master. Now just take a moment to reflect silently, as we did before, but this time you can respond Jesus in your hearts if you want to. To whom are you a slave? But then think about this second question. What is your experience? Does your life correspond to the desires of your master? I ask that second question because some of us might want to say, well, if you can't be free, then perhaps we don't really have to choose between two masters. Perhaps we can serve both of them and just flit between the two. After all, isn't that how our lives feel sometimes? Sometimes, yes, we feel like we're making progress. We feel like we're living better lives. We feel like we're treating other people better. It feels good. But then we suffer a setback. We get angry again, or we give in to sexual temptation, or the pool of material things. And we feel like the slavery of sin has got a hold of us again, a hold over our lives. And we think, no, no, I'm not going anywhere. A mother, was, a mother was driving her three-year-old along in the car. The daughter was sat in the back, playing quietly with her Barbie on this long journey. After a bit, the little girl piped up. Mummy, I wish I could be more like my Barbie. Her mother sighed. How sad it is that society's notions of body image could affect her child so young, just three years old. Why is that, sweetheart, she asked. The little girl responded, because I wish my head could twist all the way around. <laughs> and that's what we feel like we're doing sometimes, isn't it? One moment we're looking to do good things, the other moment to serving God in the right way, the next minute our heads are turned right round, we're facing in a different direction, and we're trapped back in the old habits of sin, or even some new ones. And we can start to feel quite dizzy, can't we, as our heads spin round, swiveling one way and then the next. But Paul says, no, it's not like that. He says, you are the exclusive possession of one master, either a slave to sin or to slave to righteousness. Never both at the same time or flitting between the two, as if we could choose who we want to work for one day and then work for someone else the next. No, once we become a slave, we are a slave to one master. That's it. That's who we serve. And that's why our choice of master is so important. As a slave, one master might lead to good treatment, mightn't they? The ability to marry, to have children, to be treated as a respected servant sometimes. Another master might just lead to exploitation, starvation, even death. And in the spiritual life, Paul says it's just the same. Verse 16, if we choose to be a slave to sin, it will lead to death. If we choose to be a slave to obedience, it will lead to righteousness. The choice is important. As someone once said, there are two sides to a piece of flypaper. You know the things that hang down over windows? One is sticky and the other is not. It makes a crucial difference to the fly which side he lines on. But Paul here is writing to Christians. Verse 17, thanks be to God, he says. Thanks be to God. Because though you used to be slave to sin, you have been converted. You have been set free from that sin. Verse 18, and you have become slaves to righteousness. 
And back to verse 17 again, you have been transferred from the old master sin and entrusted to a new master. The new master is a new form of teaching to which they have become obedient. They are under new ownership. Yes, they've been set free from one master, but they've taken on a new master immediately. And they must live according to the wishes of that new master. Which is why in verse 19 we're told, just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness leading to holiness. Now we need to get the subtle distinction of what's going on here. They are objectively under new ownership. They are slaves to righteousness. These are describing words. But in verse 19, Paul switches to the imperative. Therefore you must start to live the life of a slave to righteousness. They are to offer their bodies in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When Barack Obama became president of the United States, now he could have gone to that nice inauguration ceremony, said the few words, blah, 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 how nice it is to be here, blah, 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 that sort of thing. Um, And he would have been president of the United States. That would have been his actual objective status. However, after the big party, he could have gone home, put on his slippers, and thought, now what am I going to do in my life? He would still be the president of the United States, but he wouldn't be living the life of a president. So now that we are slaves to righteousness, we have to start living like one. There's no flitting back and forth, no head spinning around, no living as if we were still a slave to sin. After all, verse 20 says, when you were slaves to sin, you were under no restraining influence of righteousness. You just did what you wanted to serve your master. But now we must offer ourselves to righteousness and holiness with as much zeal as we used to offer to sin. Verse 21, Paul asks, what benefit did you gain from all those years of sin? The answer is only two, shame and death. Those are the wages of working for sin. The wages of sin are death, says verse 23. In contrast, you are now slaves to God, and the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. That is the free gift, not a wage, but a free gift, which is all you get for being a slave to righteousness. The gift of God, which is eternal life in Christ our Lord. Now, some of us here, if we're honest, we may realize that actually our goals in life are to look after number one. We don't want to hurt anybody else along the way, but essentially I want to look after myself and my family. Paul says, you are a slave to sin, and you must obey who you serve. The good news is that you can do something about it, And in a moment, we'll find out what. But I guess that most of us here know that we have already made that transfer to new ownership. We belong to Christ, and we are slaves to righteousness. But perhaps some of us are still looking back to how we were before, instead of living in complete obedience to our new master. Well, in that case, we need to take the opportunity later on tonight, perhaps, to just repent 
and to resolve to offer our lives to righteousness and holiness. But that brings me to our second point, which is this. Um, We have entered into a new relationship. We need to explore this whole idea of being a slave to righteousness a bit further. Why? Because perhaps just living, we're just living in a new form of slavery. Is it as dehumanizing and degrading as the old form of slavery was? Are we just slaves to righteousness, simply tied to a new treadmill, or constantly working harder to be better people? And this is where Paul introduces his somewhat confusing illustration from marriage in chapter 7. And perhaps it's worthwhile just here to reflect that actually verses 1 to 3 aren't meant to be any teaching on marriage or or remarriage or divorce or anything like that. It's simply another illustration that Paul plucks out of everyday life to illustrate this point he's making about slavery and relationship. So let's read those verses together in verse 1 to 3. Do not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. What is Paul trying to say here? Well, firstly, I think he's saying that death breaks the marriage contract. It's a fairly obvious point, isn't it? The woman whose husband dies is set free from her marriage promises. Therefore, in that sense, death is also required to break our obligations as slaves to sin. And this is where the analogy that Paul is using gets a little bit confusing. Because if we follow the marriage illustration rigidly, then the woman would have been the believer, and the law would be the husband. Therefore, the meaning would be, on the death of the law, the believer, the woman, is set free to seek a new master, obedience to righteousness. But here's the surprise. Paul doesn't say that, because he can't. After all, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 31, he says, do we then nullify or cancel or kill the law by this newfangled Christian faith? Not at all, he says. Rather, we uphold the law. And Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, Matthew 5. But some death is still required. Death is still required. So whose is it? Verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law. You died to the law. So the law is not killed by the new Christian faith. It is upheld as good and correct and fulfilled in Christ. Instead, what has to die is ourselves. Everything within us which wants to be self-serving and selfish and trying to be free to do what we like has to die. How? Well, verse 4. You die to the law through the body of Christ. And so, to borrow a Cluedo analogy, it was done on the cross with the broken body of Jesus Christ by God the Father. It was done so that our sinfulness might die. And verse 4 again says, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. Which brings me to the second point of the marriage illustration. Verse 3 says, 
if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. In other words, death brings the freedom to enter into another relationship. So in this case, the death of our sinful nature allows us to belong to Christ. But some of you might say, but he's dead on the cross. But no, he's not, because verse 4 goes on to say that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And as we saw last week when Alan was preaching in chapter 6 and verse 5, if we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. And that's part of the symbolism of baptism, isn't it? Being baptized into his death so that we might have new life. So is our new slavery to righteousness as dehumanizing and degrading as our slavery to sin? By no means, Paul would say. Because Christ's death puts an end to our selfish natures and brings us into this new relationship with the risen Christ. We are not just slaves. We are bound to another. And that other, Christ, has given his all so that we might live. A Puritan confession put it like this. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers in the gospel consists in their yielding obedience unto him, but not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. We are still slaves. We still have to live the life required by the master, which incidentally he found, we find described in the law of Moses. But we don't work out of slavish fear or to earn our wages. We work out of love for Christ who makes this new relationship possible. I wonder when you give your most at work. Is it when you are properly incentivized? Is it when there's a clear link between your efforts and the reward you receive at the end of the day? Is it when you can align your, yourselves, your own values, to the corporate vision and goals? Well, all of these things are important, aren't they? But I found in my business life that people give most in only one circumstance, and that's when they like their boss. So is it any surprise that verse 4, again, tells us we have entered this new relationship in order that we may bear fruit to God? This is no ordinary master-slave relationship. This is a relationship of love, with us giving our all to God, who gave his all for us through his Son, so that we might bear fruit for him. The old relationship of sin just bore fruit for death. Our new relationship we can serve in the new way of the Spirit. And that's the most fruitful relationship of all. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5. So what does this mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit? Well, simply this. We hear the voice of the Spirit saying, go and encourage that person. And we say, yes, boss. We hear the voice of the Spirit saying, don't put your trust in money. And we say, yes, boss. 
we hear the voice of the Spirit saying, apologize to that person for getting cross that day. And we say, yes, boss. Not in a servile way or a fearful way, in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way, perhaps, but also the sort of knowing that you are going to obey sort of way. Yes, boss. Yes, boss. Yes, boss. An ongoing, continue, yes, boss. That's what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. The economist John Kenneth Galbraith told this story about his uh, very loyal housekeeper called Emily Wilson in his autobiography. He says, it'd been a wearying day and I asked Emily to hold all telephone calls whilst I went upstairs and had a nap. Shortly thereafter, the phone went. Lyndon Johnson, the American president, was calling from the White House. Get me Ken Galbraith, this is Lyndon Johnson. He is sleeping, Mr. President. He said not to disturb him. Well, wake him up, I want to talk to him. No, Mr. President, I work for him, not for you. Later that day, when uh, Ken Kabeif did uh, call the president back, he could scarcely control his pleasure. The president said, tell that woman I want her to come and work at the White House. <laughs> that example is complete devotion. That is serving your master. That is obeying his instructions. And it's not giving in to any other influences, no matter how tempting they may be. And that is how we must live in the new way of the Spirit. Let's pray. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might walk with him and constantly learn to say in our hearts, yes, boss, yes, boss, yes, boss throughout this week and throughout our lives, wherever we are, whatever is happening around us. Yes, boss. Amen.